Welcome to the Modern Work Podcast. I'm Katherine Conaway, and I talk to people about the work they do and how they got there. Hi. Hi. Would you like to briefly introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Katie. I am a freelance translator. I work from German primarily and sometimes Italian into English. Where are you from? I'm from the UK. I'm from Hampshire in the south of England. Uh, But the companies that I work for are all located in Germany or Switzerland. I'm constantly fascinated by the stories I hear from the people I meet while I travel the world working remotely. So I decided to sit them down and press record. Katie is on, also on remote year with me. Most of my interviews so far have been with fellow remotes as I talk to people in different places that we're doing the interview from the recording studio of my bedroom here in in my Ho Chi Minh (laughs) apartment. A little bit about your, kind of your personal backstory. Like what did you do growing up and like really briefly kind of what led you into, I assume, university? Yeah, yes. I uh, unfortunately don't have a bilingual background like some interpreters and translators do. Uh, My parents are keen linguists and so it's something that runs in our family, but I just had to study my languages the old-fashioned way. I learned German in school, um, and then at university I studied German, Spanish, and Italian, um, then proceeded to use them on and off in the various different jobs that I had uh, before I chose to do a master's in interpreting and translation at the age of about 27 I was when I started and that was what channeled me into translation as a career originally I did interpreting as well but now I focus solely on translation written translation interpreting is uh, spoken translation if you like okay so when you were growing up um, before you got to university and you were were you just taking those languages as part of your regular school or were you yes. particularly interested in language? Um, no, I, I was taking them as part of my regular school. I think because my parents liked languages that probably pushed me to maybe work harder, maybe be a little more enthusiastic. And when I was doing my A-levels, which is like high school for you guys, um, I did Spanish GCSE as, as an extra course, a lower level course. Uh, so I was interested, but I didn't really decide to study languages at university until like the final year of high school, I guess. So, um, and what, what was it that, that really drew you in as that's the thing you want to study? Um, I think it struck me as something more practical than my other options, which were English literature and history. <laughs> um, much as I liked those, I thought at least languages, albeit one of the art subjects, is useful on a more practical level, um, which is appealing, I suppose, when you're 18 years old. Okay, so you went to university and said you studied German there? German. I studied modern European languages was the course, the undergraduate degree course at the University of Durham in the very northeast of England. Uh, And unusually at Durham, you could study three languages, all of equal importance if you wanted to. So I studied German as a follow-on from school, and then uh, I picked up Italian ab initio, and Spanish was ab initio, although I had some Spanish sorry, knowledge already. what is that? That means uh, from scratch. 
Oh, oh yes, in Latin. Got yeah, it. yeah, yeah. This makes sense. I was like, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> I've got it. Technical linguistic terms. Um, and did you pick that university because of the language program? Uh, I picked it because I was rejected from Oxford. Uh, and Durham <laughs> is a classic choice for those rejected from Oxford or Cambridge. But it turned out it, it does have a good languages department. And um, since it offered the three languages, I thought, well, why not? I'll do three. And that worked out quite well for me in the long term, really, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. very cool. So you did you do any, like, work or, or internships during university? Um, I didn't really, no. I, um, I, I didn't really choose to pursue languages as, as a primary career until later on. And so it was really after I did my master's, I did the internships, which were useful. I I did this year long master's at the University of Bath in 2007, 2008. And then at the beginning of 2009, I went and did a two month internship in Italy at a translation company and two months in Germany at a translation company. So that was what really laid the foundations for a career in translation because I was able to keep working for one of the companies I interned at afterwards and have had regular work from them ever since, which has Mm. been very clients. Exactly. Yeah, Mm -hmm. very helpful. Yeah. So when um, when you got out of university then, did you move back to Hampshire where you grew up or you moved to London? Yes, uh, yes I moved back to Hampshire. Um, I traveled a little bit uh, and then I had a few interesting jobs. I worked as a waitress in a pizza restaurant for a while, which I really enjoyed. It was an awful lot of fun. Then <laughs> I worked uh, in administration, office management, basically in London, commuting from my hometown which was a very miserable experience because it's quite a long way. I had to get on the train before seven o'clock every morning and I didn't get back till seven in the evening. Um, So I decided the London city life wasn't really for me and I quit that after half a year, I think. Yeah. Uh, And then I worked in a bird park, which is like a zoo, but for birds. (laughs) So not related to languages at all, but it was local and it was fun and I like animals and it was a really good time. So I spent two years there. Uh, I think think these kind of like odd job things are always quite interesting though. Like it ends up being... I mean, sometimes it's informative, sometimes it's not. I, I waitressed a number of times when I was doing other jobs or in between jobs. And in some ways, I always was like hoping to move forward with a different career or I was doing it for the sake of this unpaid internship. But there was something really enjoyable about a job where you just show up and you do the job. And it's very much about people and, and like this kind of, you know, you're trying to make people have a pleasant dining experience. You have yeah. your team. And it's just kind of the social experience. And then you go home and you're not making the most money, but you're, you're living off of it and it's fine. And yeah, it's, and you get, you learn a lot of skills. Yeah. You actually learn a lot of skills from, from working with people. And I think that sometimes in America, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but in America, like we're so focused on having jobs and internships that are like career centric that you may never have those side jobs or or summer jobs or just regular jobs that teach you people skills or show you a different side of what, uh, you know, a good amount of the population is doing. Yeah, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I got to do things that I would never do otherwise, like feed penguins and 
bottle <laughs> feed, orphan lambs, which is like a dream come true for me. Uh, <laughs> a lot of it was kind of, was very sort of family oriented, uh, which isn't really my thing either, but I really enjoyed it. I was a, an elf in the Christmas grotto oh for several God. years running, managing children, meeting Father Christmas. Um, so it was certainly varied and... Um, and it was fun. So I, I enjoyed it. Again, like you say, not the most money, but um, it was good. It was a good experience. And then after that, I um, I went on to work as a tour guide for five summer seasons or so. Started working on European coach tours during the summer, taking mainly American and Australian tourists around Western Europe in a mad rush two weeks eight countries something oh ridiculous God. like that maybe not eight maybe seven or six but um yeah it was uh it was fun that was fun too and it made me use my languages which I hadn't been doing in the other jobs I had to work primarily with Italian coach drivers so I spoke a lot of Italian to them and then used the German some French uh very occasionally Spanish uh in the destinations that we traveled to so that that was heading a little bit more down the linguistic direction did you enjoy being a tour guide I, I did very much it was very stressful and it was a hard job um but it, it was great fun and of course you get to visit lots of interesting places I went to Paris endless times I went to Rome endless times Venice endless times and and these places can never really get boring so it yeah it was great fun it was a good job and um my Italian improved no end from chatting to all the coach drivers (laughs) (laughs) that's great so yeah that's a really interesting how did you find that job I don't I think I was just browsing for jobs abroad or travel jobs jobs in travel online it must have been about 2005 no 2006 I think I started working with them that it's the more budget part of their operations so they recruit newer tour guides whereas some other organizations will only take more experienced people but uh, we had some training and uh, they take a lot of people out of tourism schools travel courses Uh, I didn't have that route of course but uh, you it's a lot of learning on the job so they have like this set two-week itinerary and they kind of tell you the information about the things and then you're for the summer, you just do that itinerary like five times or no, something? No, not always. Sometimes that does happen, but they basically have a, a number of different tours varying from between eight days to about four weeks was the longest one, oh, wow. covering more or less of Western Europe in the process. Uh, but a lot of them would do the same program in each city. So maybe one of them would only be eight days, but it would do the same sorts of things in Paris and Lucerne as the three-week program would do. But the three-week program would include lots of other things besides. So a lot of your knowledge of one tour is relevant to all the tours or several other tours, but you weren't always doing the same tour. So sometimes you did have to go to places that you've not been to before with 40 people in tow having to show them where to go and find the toilets, find the ATM. So you just want literally one step ahead of them. Yeah, yeah. You're like, yes, exactly. yes, this is the thing that you're doing now. And it's, it's oh, look, it's right over here. Exactly. And it was probably before ubiquitous data SIM cards. So I rarely, well, I, I never had data on my phone. Smartphones were probably less. So this explains your obsession with the guidebooks. Yeah, there you go, you see. They've served me well in the past. 
past, so they will continue to serve me well in future, <laughs> I don't doubt. <laughs> You've been one of the few people to devotedly use the paper guidebooks throughout and, remote year. And they have served me very well this year. I, I maintain that I know more about the cool things to do in places than anybody else does because my guidebook tells me everything. <laughs> do you have a particular brand that you... I like the rough guides. Like, yeah, I'm just used to them. I'm used to the format of the maps. Um, so, yes. I, Asia, I've got one big guidebook to cover the whole of Southeast Asia, which is a little That's bit limited. <laughs> so I don't think, yeah, it's not as in-depth as I would like it to be. But the European ones were excellent, I have to say. Yeah. Do you use the guidebooks more like once you arrive you get it you're, you're like you're doing it as you go or do you read it like the before you get there no I like to I like to have perhaps read on, on the plane as I'm traveling there or on the bus as I'm traveling there so at least I get the overview of how the city is divided up or where the central area lies what are the main sites to see but I don't really read up an awful lot in advance unless I'm looking up accommodation that I need to book and recommendations for that uh no I'm very lazy I just read it <laughs> read it when I need to <laughs> did doing that job I mean I would imagine what did it really change the way that you traveled and and that's a good question. Or planned travel um, or something? Yes, probably. I think it meant it made me feel more relaxed in all these foreign cities. And uh, in Paris, we had to get around by ourselves while the clients were looked after by uh, local guides. So I was happy to use the metro. And uh, yeah, I, 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 you, you probably get much better at uh, just winging it. A little bit because you have to be putting on a show for the clients that makes it look like you know where you're going all the time you don't always know um so only in that sense but uh yes and maybe it did make make me love my guidebooks more because i, ca I always carried them for all the places i went to just <laughs> in case <laughs> um yeah because you've actually i mean you're on remote year and, and of course we've gone to some interesting places and I know you've done a lot of side trips, but mm. you have done a fair amount, it sounds like, of travel. I know you did your storytelling about going to, what was it, um, Turkmenistan? Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. Yeah, was... Katie, Katie stands up to tell the storytelling event and is like, oh, I'd really been wanting to go to Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. And we're like, yeah, sure, as, <laughs> as one dreams of frequently, you hear about it all the time. I mean, I'm sure they're incredible, but... Yes, They're not they, the destinations we think of. But then again, you spent five summers touring Europe. So you're onto the... Yes, I, I quite like to go to a place and feel like you're quite, you're a bit more of a pioneering tourist when you go there and you're not one of masses of tourists that come through, uh, which is the case in all the places we used to go to on our coach tours, going through Venice, going through Rome, going through Paris. It, sure. We were hordes and hordes of tourists coming through every summer. Um, so sometimes it's quite nice to feel like you're a little bit uh, more adventurous and I can't pretend that uh, I did an awful lot of organisation for that trip because the Turkmenistan-Uzbekistan trip was uh, with a an adventure tour company so it made it very easy for me um, but uh, yeah, my ex-boyfriend and I went to Belarus as well which was quite adventurous because there's just not really any tourism there um, and there's some interesting things to see, but maybe not really interesting enough for most people. Mm -hmm. um, but I really like to see places 
in a way that aren't so touristy because uh, you just feel a bit more adventurous as a result. Uh, and often there are lots of little gems to be discovered anyway, albeit probably not worth traveling all that way for from the US or... Uh... Well, I think there it's, it's certainly like a luxury and a privilege to have traveled enough that like I have seen a lot of, a lot of the things that people, you know, are making like life long, like goal bucket list kind of trips yeah um but I think you know the longer that I traveled and the more that I've seen people it's like oh you can do this in two days and I I'm increasing like not that I won't ever spend short time periods in places but I'm increasingly at, at odds with that because like even if you're in like a small town a village like you couldn't possibly see everything and get to know people and like really learn about that place and those people and their culture and like the food, like, no. And so, especially when people are talking about a city or, or an entire country and they're like, oh yeah, you know, I mean, I scooted right through there in three yeah. days on my backpacking trip. And, uh, you know, I've really seen Vietnam. I'm yeah. Like, are you sure? Like, <laughs> yeah. But then that's the privilege that we have being able to work, isn't it? As we travel, I think most people have a very limited amount of holiday they're able to stick to. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, but I also think it's kind of a, it's a mindset because if you think about backpackers, you know, they've decided to take the time to travel and it's certainly hard to hold yourself back when you could go to so many places but the mindset tends to be like, let me check off as many cities and countries as possible so that I can say I've been to 20 countries rather than slower travel more in depth through less places. Like that that ability to rack off some numbers is, you know, usually yeah. what people are going for. And, and that's actually been the case in remote year largely, yeah. hasn't it? People yeah. go to Malaysia and because they're in Malaysia, they think, well, we might as well go to Singapore or we might as well go to Indonesia. But all they see of Malaysia then is Kuala Lumpur and there's actually quite a lot of interesting things to see in Malaysia itself. So I, I'm with you on that. And I like to think that I'll always go back to places. I never, I never leave somewhere thinking, well, I'm never going to come back here because... Uh, I like everywhere and everywhere's interesting for me. And also I have a really bad memory. So I'm able to go back to any place that I've been to before and not remember a thing about the last time I was there. And uh, so it'll be interesting every time I go, I'm glad to say. So you did this, it sounds like you did this when you were getting your master's. What made you kind of make that, I'm going to go get a master's and this is the program I'm going to do? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I always had a translation in the back of my mind because I did a little bit of it for my undergraduate degree. Um, not even terribly successfully, I have to say. And we also at Durham had a little interpreting course in the final year of our German degree, which again, I wasn't terribly successful at, but I quite like the very pragmatic, practical application of language that translation and interpreting involves. Um, so I had it in the back of my mind, I think. Uh, and I did, I did five seasons of the tour guiding and was able to save up some money whilst I was doing it. So it's sort of between my fourth and fifth seasons, I think I started doing the master's. Bath had a good program, which involved translation and interpreting so you could not put all your eggs in one basket and and see how you got on the so um it was quite focused on the interpreting the course which is why I initially went into interpreting um but we did have a big translation element as well and that worked out just suiting my personality better I think 
Um, but yes, I think I'd already always had it in the back of my mind and the opportunity came up because I had the money and I was always aware that I didn't really want to do tour guiding for my whole life. It's a very transient lifestyle, of course. Um, and uh, yeah, the course in Bath was really worthwhile. And and it is, uh, you know, the U.S. is like notoriously bad for our education costs. I assume a master's program is like reasonably affordable. Yeah, still, it was. Or? I mean, it was 10 years ago now. And I think I paid... Uh, I think the fees were something like £6,000. I think it's more... And it's two years? No, one, one year. year only. And and it's an academic year, so it's only really eight months or something like that. It sounds like it was a pretty practical degree in terms of teaching you how to do interpretation and translation. Yes, exactly. We did uh, a lot of um, interpreting. We had... Uh, Simultaneous interpreting, which is when you need all the equipment with the booths. So we would have a speaker. We would be sitting in booths listening to the speaker uh, through headphones and then interpreting what they said into English uh, on the microphone. Oh, that's like what we're like at the UN or something when everyone's sitting in the room. Exactly, yes. And then the equipment would record our interpretation. We would then go back and listen to it, come back into the room with the teacher, etc., That was the one type of interpreting we did. And then the other one was consecutive interpreting, whereby a speaker gives a speech and you have to take notes. So we had to come up with a complicated note-taking system, um, a bit like shorthand. And then we would give back the speech in the target language um, afterwards. So no special equipment required for that one, but um, in some ways it was harder. So we had those two forms of interpreting and then um, we had translation classes and we would also have uh, certain like extra courses we could follow about things like law and economics because often uh, for translators certainly the the specialist areas that are useful to to translators are are either legal or financial and we were our course was very much in parallel with a, a another master's course that was translation and professional language skills or professional language services they called it which was editing work and transcription work and things like that so our translation elements would be in parallel with them and they were more focused on the translations. You said you did the two internships in I Italy did. and Germany. Yes, I did that. But I, I was very keen to work in the European Union. Um, and you have to pass a, an interpreting test to be able to work as a freelance interpreter at the EU. They also recruit staff at, interpreters. Like you mean at the EU? At the EU, at the European okay, institutions. Not no, as we refer to no, it, No, not in the countries. At the, the, the institutions of the European Union in Brussels and Luxembourg. Um, so you have to do an exam, which I attempted and failed, but uh, they were very keen to recruit English language interpreters at the time. So they offered a sort of what they called a top-up course to kind of get you up to speed so you could then retake the exam and hopefully pass. So that's what I did. Um, And I passed, I think, in early 2009. 
And then I moved to Brussels for a while and I was working as a freelancer in the European institutions, which was a really good experience. But um, as gradually they, they, was, they were recruiting more and more people all the time and the budgets were being cut a little bit because of the economic crisis. And so the amount of work I got over the sort of three years I was there gradually went down. And um, working in the English booth, it's, it's sort of over the last few years, the amount of English spoken in the European institutions has just expanded enormously because of the addition of Eastern European countries, etc. And the common language for everybody is English. So what I found as an interpreter going in at the lowest level of meetings was that the vast majority of the meeting was in English. And when you are an interpreter in the English booth, you don't work when they're speaking English in the meeting. You only work when they're speaking a foreign language and you turn that into English. So what that meant was that I didn't really get a lot of practice. I was always working with colleagues and the work that we did have was shared between two or three people. But I didn't get a lot of practice to be able to improve and you really need to learn on the job and be doing it quite intensively to get up to speed. And I just never really felt that I got to the level I needed to be to make it a worthwhile career. And at the same time, I was doing the translation on the side uh, and I really enjoyed that. And I felt like it was more worthwhile for me and I was my skills were put to better use doing that. Mm -hmm. And so that's when you became a translator exactly yeah I I mean I was translating all the time anyway mainly for the agency in Hamburg that I'd done the internship at um, but I just came to a decision that I was going to leave my place in Brussels and give up on the interpreting at least temporarily because I wasn't enjoying it and it was costing me more money to be in Brussels than was worthwhile I had a lot of ties at home that I wanted to make use of. So I moved back home to Hampshire and I was living there for three years, probably just focusing on translation before coming away on remote year. And your clients and work for that came through that agency in, in Hamburg or yeah. how do you how do you get your clients and your projects? Well, I've been very lucky really. The, I worked almost exclusively for the agency in Hamburg for the first maybe two years after finishing my master's and finishing those internships. And that's and an agency that handles like freelance translation. translations. Exactly. So they're getting assignments and yeah, assigning them. Exactly. Okay. They get translation work and they farm it out to their in-house translators and their pool of freelance translators. And then I acquired another agency through a friend from my master's, a German friend who had done some work for them, but she no longer wanted to work for them really. So she passed them on to me and I work very regularly for them now. They're quite a small agency, so I have a nice personal relationship with them. Um, and then I've acquired a couple more agencies. I've been very lucky in that I've never really had to go out and market myself as a translator and approach clients myself. I am good at just plodding along, doing the same thing, basically the same thing from beginning to end of the day. Um, but I like it that way. I don't have any desire to go into meetings. I don't want to make phone calls. I don't want to be 
getting in touch with potential clients or doing marketing. You just want to do your work. I just want to get on with my work and I like it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of um, translation, like what kind of work is it that you do? Um, so I think that's that's probably the key to it is that I get a lot of variety. So mm. I never really have developed a specialization like the legal or the financial texts, um, which would probably be more lucrative. But uh, it does mean that I have lots of more general work and it's a bit more interesting that way. So I do a lot of internal business communications, perhaps for big Swiss companies that have a lot of international employees and they publish all their internal business communications in four languages because it's Switzerland. Um, websites, I do CVs and cover letters, um, marketing material, uh, and then that's for the main agency in Hamburg. The, the newer agency I acquired is focused very much on art and architecture, which is a very interesting area and quite niche. I've never studied art, but architecture but I really enjoy it and they have a lot of material for museums and galleries so Ooh, that's uh, right up my alley exactly <laughs> catalogues for contemporary art exhibitions um, and analyses of uh, artists work to be published in in the material that goes along with various temporary exhibitions in these big galleries maybe in Frankfurt um, so most of your work is German to English? German into English, yes. I get the occasional bit of Italian just because um, there are some Swiss clients, but I've never, uh, I've always had enough work from the German that I've not really branched out too far into the Italian and I really enjoy working with the Germans. So how do you do this translation work? Like what is it like, you know, you sit down, what are your files and apps and process? Yes, good question. Um, I'm very uh, useless with technology, so I try and keep it very low tech. And I basically use uh, Office, so Word. Sometimes I get Excel files and PowerPoint files too. And I use a form of translation memory software, which is called WordFast. Basically, translation memory software is pretty ubiquitous in the translation world now. And what it does is it builds up a memory of what you have translated so far. You generally have a particular memory for each client. You don't have one whole memory of everything you've translated ever. You have one for each client. Um, and uh, so if you've translated a sentence before and that sentence comes up in a new translation, the software will automatically insert that translation for you. Or mm. similarly, if you've got a, a sentence that's very similar to one you've translated before, it will insert that as a suggestion and it will highlight by means of colour that it's not exactly the same and you can ask it to highlight what bits of the sentence are different. Um, you can also select a word and then search the translation memory for it to find out whether you've translated that word before and how you translated it and it will show you the sentence. So it's very useful and it can save you time and make you more efficient. Um, and it's very good for the purposes of consistency between texts as well. Right, so, because I think that's something that we don't think about as like a normal person very often. That, that like when I'm reading a text, like the words are just the words I'm seeing. But the translator has all sorts of choices that you're constantly making that impact the tone and the voice and the meaning 
of the document based on what word you choose. Because if I say, I don't know, like maybe better for you, but like you could say, like, what's one word that very commonly could be done like four different ways, Exactly. you know, and then, then whether you pick one or the other really could change the way you read something. Yeah, exactly. And lots of companies have something like a sort of a claim, like a tire company, it says on the move for you. And you could easily translate that as in motion for you or in various different ways. And you have to be sure that it comes up the same way, obviously, every time, because it's very important for their marketing purposes. Right. Um, like it's, it's, um, translation is not just about like a very direct, like Google spitting out, like this means this, this word means this. It's that when you're translating, you're making sure that the sentence and the paragraph and the document has that purpose in the same way. Exactly. If, is it marketing something? Is it positive? Is it informative? Like, exactly. you know, there's a, I imagine a, a pretty creative element to your job. Yes. And you have to know who you're writing for, of course, and you have to have a very good feeling for the nuance of the source language so that you can reflect the tone of it, the, the register, the style, um, and you also need, probably most importantly as a translator, a very good knowledge of your own mother tongue, the target language, because you have to be able to play around with it an awful lot to incorporate all the elements of meaning that you can from the source language and at the same time to craft a piece of text that is pleasant to listen to, sounds natural, sounds like it was written in English to start with. Like grammatically correct. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> the basics like that are pretty important. So yeah. yes, it, there's a there's a lot to it, but um, it's a fun process. Yeah, and I would imagine I don't know German, but my understanding of German is they have like lots of adventurous words that combine together, uh, yeah. and we don't quite have the same in English. So I'm sure you're constantly like, how do you get that idea across of some scary German word that means six things. <laughs> exactly, yes. There's, there's also, German throws up lots of those uh, difficulties and that's all all part of the translation process, of course. Uh, sometimes we can just adopt them into English like zeitgeist, so mm. that makes it easier. But um, uh, yeah, often, often there's several English words required, um, which means that uh, word counts are quite significant when it comes to translating German because often translators are paid by the word and uh, German tends to have a lower word count but perhaps it'd be a longer body of text than the English so it means you've got to be got to make sure that your your rate per word is sufficiently high to make it worth your while as well. I think that's something people often misunderstand about freelance work is that if your rate is $40 an hour or $60 an hour or 100 or 150 like if you walk into the room as a freelancer for something in you know like creative development whatever and you say your rate is $150 an hour people in the industry aren't going to blink because that seems very reasonable but you tell like your friend who has a salary job that that's your hourly rate and they're like oh my god like I don't make that much I'm like sure yeah when you have a salary job your hourly rate might be $20 an hour for the hours you work or 30 or whatever um, but as a freelancer, you don't get to bill every hour and you have to find the clients or you have to manage the administrative tasks um, and you're responsible for your own overhead and, and, and all these other factors. And if you can get $100 an hour, but you can only bill, you know, 20 hours a, a month, like yeah. that is you're certainly not making a ton of money. And so it can really like fluctuate and like, I don't know if your work is seasonal at all, but depending on when 
you clients need things or they don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like no, you may I, or it may does. not. Um, yeah, it does fluctuate. And I particularly noticed when I was working for the one main agency only that uh, they would have periods where it would just go really, really quiet and I would have very little to do. Now, because I have a couple of other agencies I do regular work for, it tends to balance out a little bit. But it's always a bit quiet sort of around Christmas time and very yeah. early January. And so when you decided to come on remote year you were already working remotely and doing this transition work and you'd obviously traveled quite a bit but you were you were drawn to yes I was people had often said to me before oh you could just go off traveling and do your job and I the idea always appealed to me but I, I think on a practical level it's not quite so easy and I had commitments at home of course as well so I never really thought about it seriously but when I read about remote year I thought I could do that very easily with my job Uh, and I think because I've traveled a lot I would I adaptable enough and that I could cope with various different accommodation moving from one place to another each month the, and it would be really nice to have somebody take charge of the logistics of providing me with a reliable place to work and good Wi-Fi, which are the main things that I'm not able to guarantee myself. And I'm hopeless if the Wi-Fi goes wrong or if I have problems with technology and things like that. So the idea of someone else taking care of the logistical things that stress me out and enabling me to just do the things that I enjoy was very appealing and my job is so obviously suited to the remote work that uh, it was a very easy transition for me other than the other than the time differences. It's interesting. I think that people who've come into remote year with more travel experience have tended to probably be able to appreciate the program more since the beginning. Whereas like if you if you came into remote year, especially for us, South America, which is a very challenging um, place to really try to like live and work and travel. Uh, not just as a backpacker. Um, if you're coming from America or Europe and normal life, it can seem like really terrible standards of like our accommodations or the wire, or the internet. And, and some of that I do think remote year needs to improve. And I think they are improving because we were the second group. Um, and we were the first to a lot of those cities. It, it, it's a learning process for them. But if you've been responsible for it yourself <laughs> or you've seen what it's like in foreign countries, you know when it just is part of the challenge of doing that travel and foreign country work. And um, it is actually really nice to have somebody whose job it is. And even if they don't do a good job, at least you can blame them. Um, Like now having to to make my, you know, it's exhausting to find your own accommodation and travel and and figure out where you're going to work. And, you know, now I'm the one, we're back in the position of having to strategize okay, what's the good neighborhood? Where are the workspaces I want to use? Where can I live in relation to that? What's a reasonable amount to pay? Like, is this accommodation going to be like, it's hours of work. It's a ton of time and, yeah. and, and mental effort to figure out. And suddenly you're back to, I mean, you and I have both traveled a lot. Like yeah. we know what we're doing and it's still daunting yeah. and exhausting. Yes, it definitely is. I um, was really coming in expecting a single room, a single bed, a shared bathroom, probably a bus ride to get into town, to get to the workspace, whatever. And so because I had those expectations, which by some people's standards are probably very low, I've been pleasantly surprised everywhere. We've always been in the really nice parts of town. 
we've always been able to walk to the workspace more or less. Um, I've generally had a double bed to myself. I've often had an ensuite bathroom. If I've had a shared bathroom, it's shared between no more than two people, three at the absolute maximum. Um, I've been pleasantly surprised all over. And like you say, it's such a lot of work to do these things yourself. Uh, a lot of people have been quite keen to work in cafes and it's it's nice, but in my experience, I you can waste an awful lot of time, A, researching where the good cafes are, B, maybe getting there and finding that the Wi-Fi isn't that great or that the chairs are really uncomfortable. Mm. And so you can only spend a couple of hours there and then you need to find somewhere else. So the whole process begins again. Um, and even if you only spend 20 minutes going between cafes, if you have to do it twice during the day, that's 40 minutes of your working day that you've wasted. And having remote year provide us with a workspace that I just rock up to and I'm guaranteed to be able to get work done. And I don't have to purchase a coffee. I don't have to purchase any food. I can turn up when I want. I can leave when I want. It's it's been very useful and there's no I haven't even had to research workspaces or or anything like that so the the way the program's worked out for me has been really good and it's been ideal I'm unfortunately I'm a I part of it is I like cafes and I like eating and so I like to have where they'll bring me those things while I work and um but it does take a ton of time and it makes me very inefficient when I'm constantly not only hunting it down, but even if I find somewhere I like, sometimes I feel like, oh, I, I should try other places. Like, you know, I've gone to this cafe six times. And um, <laughs> I think that's why I loved our workspace in Prague so much, because it was such a lovely, it was this old Dutch embassy in Prague. Yeah. We were there in the summer. We had a garden. We did yoga. I taught yoga. Yeah, yeah, that was great. Um, but they had like this little kitchen with some good food and a, a really nice like espresso coffee machine that would make like cappuccinos yeah. for a dollar. Yeah. And I spent so much time there because I didn't want to go anywhere else. I could go to the workspace. I could have my coffee. I could have my breakfast and lunch. I could do yoga. I could like everything was in one place. Yeah. Um, and it was really great. And I think it's, I think, I guess Synergia and Montevideo is kind of like that. Um, I like Prague also because there were various different environments to work in. You could be in a more sociable room where there were people coming and going all the time, or you could go to a more quiet private space where you could focus a bit more you had tons of daylight everywhere and like you say you could get food and drink as much as you liked uh yeah it was ideal and the workspace it was uh, workspaces have obviously varied a lot and cafes vary a lot but um what are your plans next I, you have quite a journey I have quite a journey, yes. Um, <laughs> I'm travelling home by train uh, from Ho Chi Minh all the way to London, uh, which is it going just, to take... It sounds so remarkable. It's very I, you, romantic you in the 19th century. You must document <laughs> Katie on the train. Uh, yes, I hope so. I now have a selfie stick, so I can... <laughs> <laughs> take numerous photos of myself on trains across Asia. You have to check in with TJ and, and yeah. get some tips because I really want to follow this. I'm so I'm, I'm a little envious of you doing it I kind of want to do it I'm, myself yes so. I'm sure you won't be envious when you see me doing it because I'll <laughs> be moaning constantly about how cold it is and how there's no good food and all those sorts of things but uh I am looking forward to it. it's going to take me a month and then I'll be at home so you're taking a train from Ho Chi Minh from Ho Chi Minh to Hanoi uh Hanoi to Beijing uh and then it's Beijing to Moscow but I stop 
off a couple of places on the way. Is it the Orient Express? It's the Trans-Siberian, Trans-Siberian. the Trans-Mongolian branch of the Trans-Siberian Express, yeah. Um, and then... I think I want that to be my honeymoon. Yeah, I, You'll have to tell it. me if it's worth it. But <laughs> in my imagination, since I was a little girl, I just thought the idea of this long train journey and seeing these wonderful landscapes <laughs> and going from Beijing to Moscow or St. Peter's, like, it just is so much of the world it's so romantic isn't it but just make sure you do first class if you're going for your honeymoon i would think because otherwise <laughs> a lot of the romance will be taken out of it <laughs> uh, but yes so i'm stopping at a couple of places on the way and is that then, part of the itinerary or you've put it in i've put it in yes basically i the train goes non-stop beijing to moscow if you want it to and it leaves about three four times a week um uh but if you want to you stop off at places and then you pick up the next train on its way through um so that's been quite a lot of planning and then i'll be home and i have to decide what to do with the rest of my life which is a bit daunting <laughs> but i'm hoping to still do quite a lot of traveling and um and hopefully maintain something of a home base at the same time i'd really like to maybe do 3 months on 3 months off do you want to talk about Bobby? <laughs> that is, that's one of the home <laughs> home issues. Yes, I have a horse back home. It's like having a baby. It's a lot of responsibility. Why do you have a horse? Why do I have a horse? Well, <laughs> I, I've been riding ever since I was about seven years old. And um, we had family ponies when I was younger, shared between my sister and me. And... Uh, then I didn't have a horse for a long time. And a few years ago, I decided I wanted to get one. So I did, even though it wasn't terribly practical. I was living in Brussels at the time and I had a horse at home and I was oh. traveling between the two. I had some help looking after him. I had a boyfriend in Italy, a horse in the UK and a job in Brussels. It was a ridiculous <laughs> lifestyle. Um, but uh, yes, and so he's he's a great horse and he's won me quite a lot of rosettes over the last few years but uh, you do jumping uh he has done some jumping jumping's not that his was the forte. goal that was the goal it's turned out that it's not his forte nor mine so we have focused on dressage and he is very good at dressage what does um, that mean well that's basically um if, if you see the dancing horses at the olympics they they do dressage to music i don't do anything that advanced um you basically have a a set test of movements that you have to do in walk, trot, canter, um, then various paces within the paces, extended, medium, collected, uh, and various different moves, circles, loops, etc. Everybody does the same one, and the judge watches you and gives you marks for how the how well the horse is going in each of those movements. Um, so it's a competition, but no jumping involved. Uh, which is fun and good for those of us who are a bit wimpy when it comes to the jumping and, <laughs> and for horses like mine who don't really enjoy it very much. But he's, he's very good at dressage, so yes. And you've gotten to ride horses a few times on remote years. I did. Uh, in South America, I rode three times in three different countries. Well, is there anything else you want to talk about? Work, projects, travel, or...? No, that's it. That's it. I had no. I have no more interesting things to say. <laughs> no, well, you, you have so many interesting things. I could hear you tell me crazy stories of your adventures any day. But, um, <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. For more information or to subscribe to our newsletter, please go to our website at modernworkpodcast.com. <laughs>
This is a passion project that is self-funded with support by listeners and friends via Patreon. Visit modernworkpodcast.com to learn more about how to contribute. Thank you for listening and please share.